The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything, so you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man, Spread Eagle, over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade. Nothing to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We're on the road to Parkland at this time. It was early 1967. The country was starting to lift its head from the weight of the JFK assassination just over three years before. There was a lot to face. War was raging in Vietnam. Demonstrations were erupting across the nation in protest of the war. The country was in turmoil. But not everyone had forgotten the events of November 1963. On February 17th, New Orleans received news that its DA, Jim Garrison, was launching a criminal investigation into a possible conspiracy surrounding Kennedy's death. The name of Garrison's key suspect flew across the lips and newspapers of the nation. David Ferry, pilot, possible mobster, and a key link in the shadow chain Garrison's case seemed to be assembling around JFK's body. Ferry was thrust suddenly into the glaring spotlight of national notoriety. Less than a week later, Ferry was dead. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories from ParCast. Each week, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. 
You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked how you can help support the show, and if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our second and final episode on the conspiracy theories surrounding the death of President John F. Kennedy. Last week, we covered the official story of the assassination, as well as some of the national distrust and skepticism surrounding that story, particularly in the years after Watergate. This week, we talk about the unofficial stories. Conspiracy theory number one, communist retaliation. Oswald was working for the Cubans, or possibly the Soviets. For this theory, we'll look into Oswald's notorious and mysterious trip to Mexico and consider his time in the Soviet Union as well. Conspiracy theory number two, the accident theory. The tragic possibility that at least one of the shots which hit Kennedy was accidental, and that this accident was covered up after the fact by the FBI, Secret Service, and others. Conspiracy theory number three. The CIA, with the aid of the FBI, the mob, anti-Castro Cuban groups, and the military-industrial complex, banded together to assassinate JFK and used Oswald as their patsy. We'll try to piece together how this mysterious, powerful right-wing cabal might have operated. Ladies and gentlemen, We have a press report over the wires. We hope that it is unconfirmed, but we have to doubt it, that the President of the United States has been the victim of an assassination. (laughs) Officially, JFK was killed by a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, an ex-Marine and communist sympathizer. Oswald was stationed in a six-floor window of the Texas School Book Depository, his place of employment. His rifle blasted three shots down onto Dealey Plaza as the presidential motorcade passed by, hitting the president in the head and back, which resulted in his neck wound, as well as injuring Texas Governor John Connolly. An hour and a half later, Oswald was in custody, and two days later, he was dead, shot by distraught nightclub owner Jack Ruby. But conspiracy theories about the assassination started emerging in the immediate aftermath of November 22nd. To quell fears of conspiracy, the new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, signed an executive order establishing the Warren Commission, which was tasked with formulating an official public account of the death. But the commission did little to quiet the rumors floating around the country, and polls regularly turned up majority doubt about the Warren Report's conclusion. To date, there have been over 1,000 books published on the JFK assassination, over 90% of which propose some sort of conspiracy, according to ABC News. That makes it probably the most written-about conspiracy theory of all time. Or rather, conspiracy theories. What few of these books can agree on is who exactly was behind the assassination and how that conspiracy operated. 
figures and groups as diverse as Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson, the Chicago mob, and the so-called Umbrella Man, a bystander holding an umbrella at Dealey Plaza, have been pinpointed as potential conspirators. All of these theories are based on intense scrutiny of the Warren Commission's 1964 report on the assassination. Some people were satisfied by the 888-page report and its 15 volumes of follow-up indexes. It gave the appearance of a thorough, comprehensive investigation. But plenty of others remained suspicious of its convenient, pre-drawn conclusions and lingering, unexplored evidence. This week, we are going to investigate some of the most viable theories about JFK's assassination. But first, let's revisit some of the factors that have kept so much of the public on the side of conspiracy theorists, whether or not they've personally looked at the evidence surrounding Kennedy's death. There's a psychological element to it, surely. JFK was a truly beloved figure in this country and abroad. His family was charmed. His ideals were progressive, and all politics aside, he was fresh and different. It's hard to accept that a figure like that could be killed in such a tragically meaningless way by a lone nut, as the press dubbed Oswald at the time. Surely, to bring down someone so monolithic, there must be a monolithic plot. There were more concrete reasons for citizens to distrust the Warren Commission's conclusions, though. The years following the commission's report were characterized by deep and very justified suspicion of the government. In the early 70s, the nation was rocked by the Watergate scandal, which implicated the executive branch, FBI, CIA, and IRS. That scandal was followed by leaks of information about other undisclosed, sometimes illegal activity by the CIA. Then, information about an FBI harassment campaign against Martin Luther King Jr. in the years before his 1968 assassination came out, which led people to wonder if the FBI had actually conducted a thorough investigation into King's death, or if they had perhaps even orchestrated it themselves. This was followed by news of apparent perjury by the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, during the Warren Commission investigation into JFK's assassination. Hoover had claimed the FBI had no reason to suspect Oswald was dangerous in his testimony. When FBI agent James P. Hostie had in fact received a note from Oswald 10 days before the assassination threatening violent action against the Dallas police. At this point... With trust in the FBI as well as the CIA compromised, the public clamor against the Warren Commission's investigation reached all-time heights. The government responded to this lack of public confidence by establishing the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1976. As we discussed last week, the committee's reinvestigation into JFK's death ended up revising the Warren Report's single-shooter opinion, but it did so on the basis of acoustic evidence that was later proven to be faulty by repeated scientific studies. So conspiracy theorists and skeptical, reasonable citizens like ourselves are left to scrutinize the documents that lie in the wake of these investigations— the Warren Report and its indexes, the report produced by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and the many other documents which gradual Freedom of Information Acts have released over the decades. 
there are still documents that remain heavily redacted. So there may be more revelations to come in the next few years. But for now, there's plenty of text to work with. This brings us to conspiracy theory number one. JFK was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald as part of a communist conspiracy. JFK may have been a progressive Democrat, but this was the Cold War. And to the communist bloc, he was a symbolic representation of capitalism as the president of the most powerful capitalist country in the world. But there's more to the theory than just the general Cold War us versus them mentality. There's some real evidence conspiracy theorists have brought to bear in discussions of how and why the Soviet Union and Cuba might have been involved with JFK's death. The Cuba version of this theory is probably the stronger of the two. We brought this up last week, but a fair amount of the outrage against the CIA in the 70s came from the fact that the agency failed to disclose its multiple attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro to the Warren Commission despite the fact that these actions on the part of the CIA gave the Cubans real motive to retaliate with their own assassination attempt. So there's motive for Cubans to get involved. We also know that Oswald had some ties to the pro-Castro group called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which he joined in the time between his return to the U.S. from the USSR and the assassination. So there's opportunity for contact between Oswald and Cuban operatives to be formed. But this theory hinges, most crucially of all, on a six-day visit Oswald made to Mexico City a few weeks before the assassination. We know that in Mexico City, Oswald visited both the Cuban and Soviet embassies, apparently in attempts to get visas to one of the communist nations. But we don't know exactly what happened during those visits. What's clear from the many records declassified over the years is that the trip was never seriously investigated by the CIA, FBI, or the State Department. So it remains shrouded in mystery. This is a glaring omission, one that leaves plenty of room for conspiracy theorists to speculate about what exactly happened when Oswald was in Mexico City. And why exactly that visit wasn't given more attention by any of the agencies investigating the assassination. The congressional testimony of U.S. Ambassador to Mexico at the time, Thomas Mann, given during the reinvestigations of the 70s, has shed some light on what was going on in Mexico. Oswald, as it turns out, was under surveillance by the CIA during his Mexico trip as a result of his visits to the Cuban and Soviet embassies. So Ambassador Mann knew Oswald had met with Cuban diplomats and Mexican officials sympathetic to Fidel Castro's revolution. Mann suspected that the JFK assassination was the result of a conspiracy involving some of those figures, and he was ready to investigate that connection on the ground in Mexico City. But his investigation was stopped short by a top-secret memo from the Secretary of State at the time, Dean Rusk. The memo, man testified, ordered that he shut down any investigation in Mexico that might, quote, confirm or refute rumors of Cuban involvement in the assassination, end quote. In that same testimony, Mann stated that he believed the CIA station chief in Mexico, Winston Scott, received the same order, although Scott never confirmed this. 
But in memoirs published in 2008, decades after Scott's death, he asserted that he, like Mann, thought Oswald was acting in concert with foreign powers. So we do have a situation where the CIA knew Oswald had made certain contacts in Mexico City a few weeks before the assassination, and we know that the State Department and possibly also the CIA stymied local investigation into that matter. It's entirely possible that the State Department wanted to centralize the investigation and give the Warren Commission investigation, whose groundwork was run primarily by the FBI, full control of how the investigation moved forward. It could have been in the interest of that official investigation to have local agencies lying low, rather than kicking up dust around the investigation by alerting potential witnesses or conspirators that they were under suspicion. Or the CIA was desperate to keep its secret assassination attempts against Castro under wraps, and was worried an investigation in Mexico City would turn up that information. Several of the assassination attempts operated through Mexico City, so this wouldn't have been an unreasonable fear. We're not inventing this theory ourselves. This is what Warren Commission investigator David Slauson now believes happened. Slauson was the chief investigator searching for evidence pointing to foreign conspiracy, and he was a key figure in producing the conclusion that Oswald acted alone. But in 2013, he came out publicly with his revised belief, stating that seeing the amount of information withheld from the commission by intelligence agencies had led him to seriously revise his understanding of the case. And we do know for sure that CIA senior officials hid information from the Warren Commission regarding Oswald's Mexico trip. They testified that there was no evidence that Oswald might have been acting with anyone he encountered in Mexico City or anyone else. Meanwhile, withholding wiretapping tapes they had made of Oswald's phone conversations during the trip, and probably photos as well, according to later testimony by CIA officials. Obviously, the Warren Commission was unable to conduct an investigation into the Mexico episode in good faith, as a frustrated Slauson later revealed, for whatever reason. This certainly adds justification to those shocked by the negligence and general shadiness of the CIA's cooperation with the Warren Commission. And it does indicate that the Commission's investigation into the Mexico trip could not have been conclusive, operating as it was on incomplete information. It doesn't, however, say anything about what Oswald actually may have planned while in Mexico, or with whom. True. Conspiracy theorists investigating this line of inquiry are working with somewhat circumstantial evidence. The CIA seems to have prevented a real investigation into what happened in Mexico City, perhaps, as Lawson suggested, to protect the information they were withholding at the time about the attempted Castro assassinations. But there's less evidence of what Oswald did do than of what the CIA didn't do. So I'd say this suggests something fishy going on at the level of the CIA. And as the 70s went on to reveal, upper-level CIA officials were in fact perjuring themselves during the Warren investigation regarding the Castro assassination attempts. But there's not much hard evidence for a conspiracy hatched between Oswald and Cuban communists at this juncture. Agreed. Well, I can't help but smell something suspicious about this Mexico episode, 
That smell does seem to be coming primarily from what we know to be the CIA's suspicious actions around Castro and Cuba. And while there are some easy connections to be drawn between Oswald's communist leanings and affiliations, there's no real proof that any of his Cuban or communist contacts had anything to do with the assassination. We also know from later declassified documents that Castro himself understood how easy and how dangerous a connection between his supporters and Oswald might prove to be. He actually secretly met with a Warren Commission investigator to insist that he had nothing to do with the assassination. Castro also indicated later in a 2013 interview that he himself believes in a conspiracy around the assassination involving the U.S. government, which was targeting JFK from the right. But we'll get more into that conspiracy theory later. So for the Cuba conspiracy, we're giving it a 4 out of 10. The motivation and connections are there, just not the proof. A quick note on the Soviet variation of the communist theory as well. And this is a similarly circumstantial theory. This version hinges on Oswald's time in the Soviet Union and the possibility that he may have been recruited as an agent of the KGB during that time. His visit to the Mexico City Soviet Embassy plays into this as well. There's even less circumstantial evidence for this version of the theory, though. The only real evidence here is that Oswald did claim he was releasing naval secrets to the Soviets when he defected to the USSR, although he later claimed he never actually went through with that. But if he did, he could have gotten himself in with the KGB as a willing spy and then returned to the U.S. as one of their agents. That would explain his continued interest in the Cuban communist cause upon returning to the U.S., despite his supposed disaffection with Soviet communism, the visit to the Soviet embassy in Mexico City could have been a means of making contact and plans regarding the assassination. It's all purely speculation, though. I'd give this conspiracy theory a 2 out of 10. We actually know from documents released in 2017 that, like Castro, Soviet officials thought the assassination was an ultra-right conspiracy for which they might be blamed as a result of Oswald's communist leanings and time in the USSR. Right. So we're giving these theories more or less a pass. Although the Cuba version especially brings up some interesting, suspicious points. Coming next, a theory that seems quite a bit more plausible. It brings up the important point that often the most tragic scenarios of all are tragic accidents. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. Our second conspiracy theory about JFK's assassination was proposed by ballistics expert Howard Donahue outlined first in the Baltimore Sun in 1977, and again in a book put together by Bonner Menninger for the reputable St. Martin's Press in 1992. Conspiracy theory number two, 
JFK was fatally shot by Oswald, but in the chaos of the moment, he was also hit by accidental fire from one of his Secret Service men, a tragic error that the CIA, FBI, and Secret Service covered up to protect the agent who opened fire. This theory is based largely on close observation of the ballistics of the case, a responsible analysis of which Donahue found markedly missing from all the official investigations into the assassination. Donahue put together his own analysis of the bullet's trajectory using the notorious Zapruder film of the assassination. Information about the car in which JFK and Governor Connolly were seated, and medical evidence about JFK's wounds. I wonder if Donahue would even consider himself a conspiracy theorist. He's a man grounded in logic who approached the Warren report in good faith and stumbled upon his skepticism as he looked at the evidence of the case. First, let's go over the problem of the magic bullet, which was the first thing Donahue examined. The magic bullet was the term skeptics assigned to the Warren Commission's analysis of the trajectory of one of Oswald's bullets, which they claimed went through JFK's neck, through Governor Connolly's right side and wrist, and then lodged in Connolly's thigh. That means the bullet went from the back of the car, where JFK was sitting with Jackie, up to the front two seats where Connolly was sitting with his wife, Nellie. This seems like an ambitious path for a single bullet to take. Donahue's ballistics analysis actually supports the magic bullet theory, though. He, like skeptics, initially agreed the trajectory the commission laid out from the school book depository window and through JFK and Connolly's bodies made no sense. But after doing a more thorough, precise analysis of the position of the two men's bodies in the car and in relation to the book depository, he concluded that it was in fact possible for one bullet to have caused both men's wounds. Aside from the bullet's trajectory, The bullet was considered magic because it apparently was completely undamaged by its passage through JFK and Connolly's bodies. But Donahue actually examined the bullet in the National Archives and concluded that it was an uneducated conclusion, from a ballistic standpoint, that the bullet was pristine or undamaged from its passage through the bodies. It actually was fairly warped in keeping with the way a bullet of this type having taken this kind of trajectory should look. It's also important to note the specifics of this type of bullet. It's formulated with a so-called full metal jacket, according to Geneva Convention guidelines. This hard casing means that in combat, it can take out opponents without shattering too thoroughly on contact, and thus it avoids creating wounds that are aggravated by the shrapnel left by other types of ballistic rounds, like hollow point bullets. Right. That's really important in looking at where Donahue disagrees with the Warren Commission. That comes into play with the second bullet which hit Kennedy in the head, leaving a dramatic, gaping wound and actually blowing off part of his head, which the First Lady famously crawled out onto the back of the car to try to retrieve. So the second bullet, according to the Warren Commission's single-shooter theory, came from the book depository and Oswald's Manlicker Carcano rifle, just like the so-called magic bullet. But what Donahue notices is just how differently this bullet behaves, and how different the wound looks from the JFK neck and Connolly body wounds. 
The head wound was the result of a bullet that shattered pretty thoroughly on contact with the body. Unlike the fairly intact, if damaged, magic bullet, only shards of the head wound bullet were found, some in the car, some in Kennedy's body. Donahue wanted to do chemical tests on these bullet shards to determine what kind of bullet they came from, and thus what kind of gun. But the shards, like Kennedy's brain, had disappeared by the time Donahue went looking for them. The so-called edge scrapings from JFK's autopsy, or bits of tissue that would have had gun residue on them, were flat out missing. Several gun shards, supposedly from the president's head wound, were in the National Archive, but none of these pieces corresponded with the weights of the fragments recorded and analyzed by apparent FBI tests, tests that were also mysteriously unrecorded in the Warren Commission report and impossible to track down. But even without those tests, Donahue's analysis of the ballistics case led him here to the startling conclusion that it was impossible JFK's head wound had been created by the same gun that punctured his neck. However, he disagreed with some conspiracy theorists that claimed the head wound had to have come from the front and thus from a second shooter located on the grassy knoll. His analysis of the bullet's trajectory and of the kind of bullet that might have caused the head wound led him inevitably to a point right on top of the Secret Service car behind the JFK convertible into the AR-15 in that car. In other words, it must have been a Secret Serviceman who shot off the top of JFK's head. Donahue examined the testimonies of all the men in the car and determined that the serviceman who shot that shot, George Hickey, did so by accident. Hickey responded to the sound of fire on the president by jumping up onto the top of his vehicle with an AR-15, apparently accidentally firing around at the president in the process. Hickey's own testimony, as well as that of other men in the car, placed him on top of the car with a gun in his hand at the critical moment. Donahue also determined that the shot hit the president after he had already been fatally injured by the neck wound, so the servicemen could not be held accountable for the president's death. But this is still a pretty shocking conclusion, and members of the Secret Service have resoundingly denounced it, although none of the actual men in the follow-up car that day came out against the theory. It is shocking, but it helps explain discrepancies in the timeline and path of the bullet shot. If you look at the incredibly detailed investigation reporter Bonner Menninger makes of Donahue's decade-long research and testing on the subject, it becomes very difficult to disbelieve his analysis. Part of what makes the theory so appealing is the very anti-conspiracy attitude Donahue approaches the whole affair with. Although he does see evidence of a cover-up in the strangely conducted presidential autopsy, the missing archival evidence, the lost tests, and the shoddy investigation into witness reports of more gunshots fired than the Warren report admits to, as more and more assassination-related documents were released over the years, we heard about more evidence of strange procedural breaches with the autopsy. This is a report from 1997 on some of those breaches. 
Gerald Ford says he was just trying to be clear when he changed key wording in the Warren Commission report 33 years ago. Ford edited the report to say the first bullet entered the back of John F. Kennedy's neck rather than his uppermost back. This change adds strength to the commission's conclusion that a single bullet passed through Kennedy and severely wounded Texas Governor John Connolly. If the bullet hit Kennedy in the upper back, like the autopsy report says, the bullet probably couldn't have hit Connolly, too. Ford insists the edit was just a clarification, but he never saw the autopsy photos himself. Heather Greenfield, Washington. We hear in this report that autopsy documents were edited and doctors were actually denied autopsy photos while writing their reports. That's far from standard procedure. So Donahue's theory does implicate members of the Secret Service, the FBI, and potentially others in a cover-up after the fact of the assassination. But he doesn't reach for claims without evidence and seems mostly interested in expounding on what he understands so expertly, the ballistics of the case. The theory doesn't address some of the other strangely floating factors of the case, like Oswald's visit to Mexico City, his extremely convenient job at the book depository, or some of the stranger elements in Oswald's background. But part of what's so convincing about the theory is how specific it is. It could easily be paired with many of the other theories that are out there, which tend to focus more on who Oswald might have been working with. The only major conspiracy idea it contradicts is that there was a second shooter on the grassy knoll in front of JFK rather than behind him. I'd give this conspiracy theory an 8 out of 10. It doesn't answer all possible questions about the assassination, but the ones it does take on, it answers in a thorough, scientific way that is hard to pick apart. It's a little less conspiratorial than our final theory, but I'd like to hazard that we could pair it with this last idea and come up with our own perfect theory. Get ready for a bit of a wild ride after this. Now, back to the story. Jim Garrison's theory about the JFK assassination could be considered the father of all JFK conspiracies. It's not exactly the first. There were conspiracy theories floating around as soon as the gunshot sounded in Dealey Plaza on November 22, 1963. But it was the first and only prosecuted case surrounding the assassination. It's also an incredibly sprawling theory that doesn't seem to count anyone out as an accomplice, meaning that a lot of conspiracy theorists have taken Garrison's case as the starting point for their own theories. And in 1991, it was immortalized forever in Oliver Stone's Oscar-winning film, JFK. The film, which Stone wrote as well as directed, follows and dramatizes Jim Garrison's case. Stone, by propagating the Garrison theory in 1991, actually catalyzed the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, which was established to provide for the expeditious disclosure of records relevant to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So Garrison and later Stone made an undeniable mark on the heap of JFK conspiracies. Let's get into what exactly these impactful ideas were. Conspiracy theory number three. JFK was assassinated by a right-wing conspiracy involving members of the FBI, CIA, and the military-industrial complex. 
Some important background on this takes us back to JFK's politics. He supported progressive agendas like desegregation and civil rights, and was sometimes accused of being too soft on communism. He had made clear his intention to pull out of Vietnam a little more than a month before the assassination. Suffice to say, the political right didn't love Kennedy. And that political right included plenty of people working in historically conservative organizations like the CIA and the FBI, and plenty of people who were part of what Eisenhower had recently dubbed the military-industrial complex in his farewell address. In 1961, just two years before the assassination, former President Eisenhower gave a famous speech exhorting Americans to be wary of the reciprocal relationship between certain parts of industry and war. Many powerful, wealthy industrialists in the country stood, and still stand today, to gain financially from war by manufacturing weapons and other military supplies. So this brings us to Garrison's theory about JFK's assassination. He believed that members of the CIA, FBI, Secret Service, military-industrial complex, and anti-Castro Cubans, with the New Orleans mob, Jack Ruby, and Oswald himself as their pawns, had JFK killed so as to get the less progressive, more pro-war LBJ into the White House and to stop withdrawal of American troops from Vietnam. Garrison also implicated LBJ himself as an accomplice after the fact. It's a complicated theory, the details of which Garrison himself, over time, seemed to shift back and forth on. Let's look at some of the key pieces of this theory. First, there's David Ferry. He was the center of Garrison's investigation, at least at the beginning. Ferry was a shadowy figure with suspected connections to the mob, anti-Castro Cubans, and the CIA. He was Oswald's Civil Air Patrol commander in New Orleans and had made a suspicious trip to Texas immediately after the assassination. Ferry claimed the trip was made with the intent of checking out an ice skating rink because he was considering opening one in New Orleans. But according to Garrison... Ferry made his trip to Texas with the intent of acting as Oswald's getaway pilot. But Garrison was never able to bring Ferry to trial because, as we mentioned at the head of this episode, four days after Garrison's probe went public, Ferry was dead. The coroner reported that he died of natural causes, a brain hemorrhage. But the apparent suicide note found in Ferry's apartment suggested to Garrison otherwise. The note read, quote, To leave this life is, for me, a sweet prospect. I find nothing in it that is desirable, and on the other hand, everything that is loathsome. Garrison believed that Ferry felt moved to take his own life, moved by his own fear of the impending case, or perhaps the influence of others. He suggests that Ferry overdosed on the drug Proloid, which could have caused the natural-looking brain hemorrhage that killed him. But skeptics say that the note found in his apartment isn't even clearly a suicide note. It could have been a freak coincidence that he wrote the downtrodden note shortly before he died of natural causes. However Ferry died, his death had an enormous impact on Garrison's case. But Garrison did his best to pull together a cogent story without Ferry. 
After Ferry's death, the case moved to focus on Clay Shaw, a prominent New Orleans businessman who Garrison contended conspired in the assassination plot with Ferry, Oswald, and Guy Bannister, who had died of a heart attack the year of the assassination. Bannister is perhaps the most compelling figure here. He was a former FBI agent with ties to the intelligence community and part of a New Orleans group supplying arms to anti-Castro forces in Cuba. Bannister and Ferry were close associates and easy to connect. And Ferry could plausibly be linked to Oswald, as he had been Oswald's air patrol commander. But with Bannister and Ferry both dead, Garrison needed to make the key connection between Oswald and the only living man he could bring to trial, Clay Shaw. Shaw and Oswald, Garrison claimed, were connected by a call Shaw made to a New Orleans lawyer the day after the assassination, asking him to represent Oswald. The call, which the lawyer originally testified to but later denied it happened, was made by a so-called Clay Bertrand, Garrison contended this was a well-known alias Clay Shaw used in the New Orleans French Quarter. Part of Garrison's case involved attempting to find credible witnesses who could attest to having seen Shaw and Oswald together. This was not very successfully done in the opinion of the jury, which ruled that there was not enough evidence to implicate Clay Shaw in the plot or to prove his motive— although some members of the jury were convinced by the idea of a plot more generally. His key witness in establishing the connection was Perry Rousseau, who claimed to have been at a party where Oswald, Shaw, and Ferry were all present. He recalled the men explicitly discussing assassinating Kennedy through a triangulation of crossfire in Dallas. Rousseau's testimony later came under suspicion when it came out that it was aided through hypnosis and the drug sodium pentothal, sometimes called truth serum. But Garrison claims Rousseau gave them the key information before these methods were invoked, and Rousseau himself holds to his story. So Rousseau's reliability remains unclear to us and also to the jury during Shaw's trial. That means that proof of the connection between the names Garrison was putting on the table was elusive. But was motive there? According to Garrison, their motive was anger over JFK's foreign policy. All the men involved had strong right-wing anti-Castro sentiment, Garrison claimed, and they were worried about JFK's diplomatic over military approach to dealing with Cuba. Bannisters, and by extension his associate Ferries, supposed connection to arms dealing with anti-Castro forces within Cuba makes this more compelling. There were real financial as well as ideological forces at stake here. But Bannister and Ferry were dead, and Shaw's connection to the anti-Castro movement was harder to pin down. We can connect Shaw to the CIA, though, something Garrison claimed but was not actually able to prove. In 1978, nearly a decade after Garrison's investigation wrapped up, CIA director Richard Helms confirmed that Shaw had been a part-time contact of the CIA. His role was gleaning information from his travels to Latin America as a businessman. This suggests he shared the CIA's fear of communism spreading through South America. And I'd say it adds to the credibility of Garrison's proposition that Shaw would have been mixed up with right-wing anti-Castro men like Bannister and Ferry. 
It's Shaw's connection to the CIA and his business contacts in various industries that really point to the involvement of a broadcast of characters in the assassination. The weapons industry, the FBI and CIA, and according to some, LBJ himself. Jack Ruby, as a nightclub owner in Dallas, may also have had connections with the mob and anti-Castro Cubans, which would have tied him up with the group by extension. He might have killed Oswald before he could implicate him and the other members of the conspiracy. The connections here are compelling. But one of the major problems with Garrison's theory is that he never gives us a clear picture of how all the potential conspirators were working together to kill JFK specifically. He connects Ferry, Shaw, and Oswald to the planning of the assassination through Rousseau's testimony, however seriously we want to take that testimony. But as he named more and more potential conspirators over the years, he failed to clearly outline the way these figures came to be part of the planning for a presidential assassination plot. That's true, but there is one fascinating possibility that could bolster up this theory. Some evidence points to Oswald being an undercover agent for the CIA. Let's start with the lack of discipline Oswald received for his apparent communist leanings while in the Marines. His high-level security clearance was never revoked, and it's possible he actually received training in the Russian language. This could indicate that he was actually orchestrating his communist conversion at the CIA's behest, and then defected to the USSR on some kind of undercover CIA mission. The surprising ease with which he defected does support that idea. He was able to easily and speedily get leave from the military on flimsy grounds and somehow found a way to make the expensive trip to the USSR despite paltry savings. There's also the surprising lack of action on the part of the U.S. Embassy when Oswald announced to them he would be handing military secrets over to the Soviets. This would make sense if he was making those announcements at the behest of the CIA. His return to the U.S. was likewise shockingly smooth and included a State Department loan. All of this could be explained if he was undercover as an agent of the CIA in the USSR. Then there's Oswald's ties to white Russian emigre George de Morinschild, whose personal relationships tied him closely both to Dallas's industrial elite and a local CIA agent in Dallas, and whose politics were decidedly right-wing. He was a suspected Nazi agent. According to the Warren investigation, Morinschild and his wife Jean were the people Oswald was closest with in the months after his return to the U.S. and before the assassination. It's actually Jean de Morinschild who got Oswald his job at the Texas School Book Depository. This relationship helps support a connection between Oswald and the kind of figures Garrison tied the conspiracy to. The de Morinschild's role in placing Oswald at the scene of the crime plays into that theory as well. It's also a suspicious relationship considering Oswald's well-documented leftist leanings. Morinschild and most of his Dallas industrialist friends, like David Ferry and Oswald's New Orleans contacts, were rabidly anti-communist. The discrepancy between Oswald's participation in pro-Castro groups and his personal relationships with anti-communists would make more sense if Oswald was only posing undercover as a leftist as an agent of the CIA. 
Garrison doesn't make the claim that Oswald assassinated JFK on the official orders of the CIA or as an agent of the CIA, but Oswald's potential ties to intelligence, along with his ties to Morinschild and possibly Ferry, Bannister, and Shaw, all indicate various ways in which he could have ended up as a conspirator in a right-wing, anti-communist, hardline plot to eliminate JFK. That's pretty fascinating. But I stand by what I said earlier. I see the connections, the way the lines of interest and power line up, and it makes sense how Oswald could have been tied into the conspiracy. But while there's plenty to be suspicious of, and some kind of broad-ranging plot definitely seems possible, I don't think Garrison draws a compellingly thorough portrait of how that plot was hatched and executed on the actual day of the shooting. Well, fair enough. In Garrison's narrative, the assassination was the result of a triangulation of crossfire from three shooters, one of whom was positioned on the grassy knoll, one of whom was hiding in a sewer manhole. He never identified either of these men. Like Donahue, Garrison made use of his own ballistics analysis to come to this conclusion, but a lot of his proof for the multiple shooters comes from witness testimony. Many of the bystanders in Dealey Plaza that day believed they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll or heard more shots than the official count of three. He believed, following the testimony of a witness from Dealey Plaza, that Oswald escaped the book depository in a green van driven by a likewise never-identified accomplice. But witnesses, especially of gunfire, are frequently mistaken in their understanding of what happens in a crisis. For example, it's a common phenomenon that regardless of where a shot is fired, listeners will automatically assume the gunfire came from in front of them. And Garrison has no solid explanation for why Oswald was captured and Ferry didn't accomplish his supposed getaway pilot mission. I'm just not convinced. I'd give this theory a 7 out of 10 for the unanswered questions it dredges up and the connections it presents. But I just don't buy the idea that Garrison really knew what happened in Dallas that day. The picture Garrison was able to draw with his evidence might have been more solid if Ferry and Bannister had lived. But the evidence, as he was able to present it, does fall a bit short of pulling all these possibly damning pieces of information together into a coherent case. Whether or not Garrison correctly answered who exactly was involved in JFK's assassination, his story gets right to the heart of the fundamental problems of investigating secretive organizations like the CIA and less official sources of power like Dallas's petroleum royalty. Even if you're on the right track, it can be nearly impossible to access all the information needed to prove your point. Thanks, at least in part, to Garrison, we're still puzzling over each new document released about JFK's death over 50 years later, and we'll probably be doing so for years more to come. As of now, with the information we've been able to see, we think it's fair to say that it seems unlikely the official story is the full story. But we're having a harder time deciding what actually did happen. We both agree that Donahue's ballistics theory seems hard to knock over. But we're not ballistics experts, and while Garrison's theory blows our minds a little, Molly would say too much of it remains unproven and circumstantial to throw our weight behind. Exactly. 
I think I have to say that while the official investigation was negligent, and I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Oswald acted with a conspirator, none of the existing conspiracy theories have convinced me, hands down, that they're true. I'll remain a skeptic about the official story, but I can't ascribe to any of the theories we've presented to you today wholeheartedly. But I don't know. I think, looking at the evidence, more seems to fall on the side of some of the conspiracies. While nothing is proven beyond a doubt here, I'd say I buy Donahue's ballistics analysis, and I'd pair it with involvement of at least some of the conspirators' garrison taps, especially the CIA and the anti-Castro Cubans. Well, that's my perfect theory. A Secret Service guard shot a bullet into Kennedy's head, but Oswald's shot was arranged by some very powerful right-wing intelligence officials and their civilian contacts. We'll agree to disagree on this one, Carter. Maybe the final documents on the case will prove one of us right. President Donald Trump promised on Twitter that he had no intention of holding back any documents from the 2017 release, but that didn't quite play out. He did end up holding back some text for further review, and although in 2018 we got the last of the records the JFK Records Act requires be made public, much of what we have gotten remains heavily redacted. But apparently in 2021, the last of the text will be declassified. And we'll be waiting with bated breath. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. Seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Let us know what your favorite theory is. Join us next week as we explore another conspiracy theory. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Nora Battelle and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.